It is great to be here. I feel totally blessed getting to come and speak to you all this morning. Um, and it's just great to look out and just see familiar faces. So uh, been on team with Lindsay in City Prayer for ages. Lindsay Norton. Sorry, mate. Cressy, congratulations. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, and like, even like Claire and John. I remember early days of City Prayer, praying you, you were at St. Nick's. Did you guys get together at City Prayer? No? Did you? Honestly. It was like the first City Prayer marriage. Isn't that amazing? So, um, so it's, just, it's just great to be here. It's so good. Um, and I do feel like totally chilled coming in to speak to you all. It feels like I'm coming to, to my, my church. And that's probably because this is my church. Yeah, one church. That's the way it is. So I'm so excited to be helping finish off this series you've been doing about radical welcome. And today we're going to be looking at um, welcoming children in care. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Mark 9, 33 to 37, um, and really look into scriptures to see what Jesus is saying about caring for vulnerable children, caring for children. So here, let's, let's read it together. Mark 9, 33 to 37. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum. When he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So our story starts here with Jesus walking along a dusty road to this place called Capernaum. And I can imagine these roads, I imagine they're not highways, quite thin roads. I imagine Jesus pretty much out in front with his disciples kind of trailing behind them in like ones and twos and threes. They're walking along, and he just starts to hear something kick off <laughs> behind him. You know, a few kind of like, oh, but I, uh, well, when I, and he's like, wow, what's going on here? Um, and he just pricks up his ears and listens in. And given the context of the passage, I, I begin to do some uh, wondering about what they might have been arguing about in terms of who is the, the greatest. So just a chapter before, there's the transfiguration. So imagine Peter, James, and John kind of going, well, if we're talking about spiritual experiences... I, I mean, Jesus said we can't tell you about it, so I can't say too much. So, but, uh, but like, um, you would not believe some of the historical spiritual figures that we've seen in visions, right? So maybe they're like boasting about their spiritual experiences, or, or given the story just before this one of the failed deliverance attempt, yeah? I wonder if they're doing a little bit of, when we were sent out two by two, we didn't have any problems. Like, I think I'm a lot better at deliverance than you, or something like, you know, they're kind of kicking off Jocelyn for position. Or maybe it's just something a whole lot more normal and human, like they're boasting about um, how much wealth they have, or what they've achieved, um, how popular they are, how great their family is. Just kind of like some of this stuff, Jocelyn for position, they just kind of goes on in society, you know, the, the family background job that one of them has got. And Jesus, I think it's amazing that he doesn't just turn around and be like, guys, 
can it? <laughs> he doesn't. He just notes it. He notes it. And they arrive at Capernaum and they get into a house. Uh, and he seizes his opportunity for a discipleship teaching moment and undoes them with one very simple question. He says, uh, guys, what were you arguing about on the road? Knowing fine well what they were arguing about on the road. And there's silence. Because they know in their hearts that what they were engaged in was not all right. But Jesus takes the opportunity to unpack why it wasn't all right and redefine their definition of greatness. So he has them sit down and he says that, guys, if you want to be first, be the very last and the servant of all. Because you think that greatness is about how great a spiritual experience you've had or, or how successful you've been in ministry or how popular you are or what you've achieved. Guys, greatness in God's eyes, sacrificial service. You want to be great? Aim at sacrificial service. It's not about the glamour. It's not about the position. It's about serving. It's about sacrificial service. My wife and I have been foster carers for two years. And remember one placement uh, that started. We had kids come to us who who'd been in care for quite a while, actually. And amazingly, they, they got adopted, but the adoption fell, out, fell through within like three months. So these kids have been in care, get adopted. It falls apart. One day, the social work they come home from school, the social worker's there, and it's like, kids, I'm sorry, it's over. Back of the car, and they're driving to our house, and they arrive at our house. Their whole world has yet again been thrown into turmoil, and they're in our house, and they're literally crapping themselves. Um, they went in, we foster primary school kids, and these kids hadn't got school places, so those kind of first two weeks were just like getting to know each other, and there's a lot of park visits in kind of autumn months. And I remember we had these three kids, and we're in the park, and there's just a whole series of these kind of kids coming, having sold themselves, and there's like baby wipes and nappy bags, and like just try to clean them up. And by the time you got one sorted, the other one was like there, and you're all doing it, and it's like, I'm like what has just happened to my world? Uh, and then to top it all off, one of the kids takes her shoes and socks off and runs around the parks and stands in dog poo, right? <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, I'm not even dealing with that. Like, who didn't pick up this dog poo? And like, at that moment, it's like, I remember crying out to God being like, God, I really thought that sovereign you would be a whole lot more glamorous than this. Greatness in God's eyes is sacrificial service. I think I'd have rather been on a platform you know, rather had loads of likes on Facebook or loads of thought, like in that park, in the cold, cleaning up feces, there was something of greatness. <laughs> because greatness in God's eyes is sacrificial service. Let's get, let's get back to the story because it's really interesting to note what Jesus uses as his illustration of what it means to serve least, and to be the servant of all, because we hear that Jesus takes a child, ushers a child into their midst, embraces a child, and says, whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me, 
And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He uses a child as his chief illustration of what it means to be a servant of all. And and this can definitely pass us by in our child-esteeming culture. Children are highly esteemed in our culture, highly valued. In those days, they weren't. Children were considered as um, kind of like drains on society. They, were, they, weren't, um, they were seen as weak, didn't really contribute much, and um, a bit of a burden upon community on the whole. And it was common practice within the Greek and Roman world at the time that unwanted children were taken to the side of the road to die. That was, that was the culture. And so in Jesus taking a child, he's illustrating, he said, see the, see the least valued, see the ones on the margins, the ones that don't really contribute anything. I'm talking about serving them. There's 650 kids in care within the Nottingham boundary. And if you, if you ever looked at boundary maps, that's a pretty small area. Beeston isn't even in that, right? West Bridgeford isn't in that. It's a small boundary, 650 kids in care. Within the county, uh, there's about another 850. Multiply that across the country. There's a lot of kids in care. And these kids are in care. Um, best case scenario is pretty much neglect, that they've not been paid attention, they've not been fed, they've not been cleaned. Best case scenario don't really want to get into worst case scenarios. So let's just give categories. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. That's why there's 650 kids in care in Nottingham. And these are some of the most vulnerable, uh, traumatized kids in society. And and it's just such a complicated thing. Like when you start kind of getting into this world and get eyes on it, you realize it's not just about the kids in care. You look at the, the parents of these kids and they've been neglected, abused. And there's this whole kind of like cycle of, of trauma and difficulty that is making up this figure. And boy, is it, does it have an impact on those guys' lives and on society as a whole. There's only like 1% of all children are kids in care. Okay, so out of every 100 kids, one of them might be in care. But when you look at the impact on society, If you look at prison population, almost a third of all people in prison have been in care. So it's 1% of all kids, but like a third of your prison population. And that's just a symptom of the level of of brokenness, difficulty, trauma that that they've experienced in their life and how how that's being worked out. In the early church, it's amazing how they responded. I told you that in the Roman Greek time, it was common practice to go and take unwanted children and put them on the roadside to die. It was common practice in the early church for them to get up and go to the roadsides and pick up the children and welcome them into their families. <laughs> and I just think of those families in those times, like surely they had those considerations of knowing that was going on and being like, but you know what, we've already got like four kids in our household, like we're working really hard just to put food on the table for them. And I could, you know, if I, if I do that, then how will that impact 
the kind of business prospects. I'm trying to kind of grow this farm here or try to develop this thing. And uh, life's already so busy at the moment. I feel like I could do with some time to relax and, and chill. But they didn't see those as reasons not to do it. They just realized that was part of the cost of doing it. And they got up and they went to the roadside and they picked up the children and they brought them into their homes. These kids need us to do the same. And they really do, I really do believe that the solution is family. What these kids need is family. And more than that, I believe they need the family of God. I remember it was uh, last, I can't remember if it was last Christmas or the Christmas before, I was chatting with someone about the fact that I was a foster carer and I had some kids. And they, they said, oh, do you have to buy their Christmas presents? I was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they said, oh, here. And they, they gave me, reached in the pocket, gave me some money. Um, and I was totally blessed by it. I was like, this person has seen the situation we're in, and they're like, they wanted to do something to bless. But um, however, as I walked away, I was, I was kind of conscious, like, well, these kids really don't need this money. Like, actually, kids in care, in a way, they're quite financially rich. By the time they come into care, they've got, the council kind of gives them vouchers for, um, for into, for their Christmas presents. And they've got access to loads of, like, money for school trips. And, and actually... Um, as foster carers, I, I, get, I get given money to, to put food on the table and clothes these kids. They, they don't actually have a financial need. They get money put into savings. Money's not what they need. And they've got a wealth of professionals around them as well. Like we can get access to, uh, to therapists, mental health professionals, healthcare professionals. Like there's, there's loads of, there's a huge team of people who are there to, to support these kids. But the one thing that they desperately need is to know that they belong to a family. And I believe that they need to know that they belong to the family of God. But that costs, it, it, I mean, it costs this guy something to give me money. Bless him. Like, I, I was encouraged by that. It cost him something to give the money because that meant he'd have to go without. And it costs health uh, professionals who give their professional lives to care for kids. I've got a mate who works in a residential care home. He has nightmare days. Like, he could... Earn the same money by working a much easier job. It costs him and it costs these professionals something to work with traumatized kids. But I would say it's, it's a whole other level of, of cost to have the kids come into your home to foster them or to adopt them because there isn't really a day off. And when you're sick and you're down with the flu and all you want to do is just like be in bed and just like, you know, and, and I'm talking man flu here. Like... <laughs> It's just like this whole other category. Um, like, it, it's, it's there, and it's happening, and it's costly. And when it's sustained over a period of time, like, it's costly, but it's what, it's what these kids need. I remember uh, there was one particular placement, and the kid, one of the kids arrived just so reeling. Um, and he was pretty destructive. He made pretty clear right from the start that he didn't want us, didn't want anything to do with us. You know, like, there's stones being chucked at windows within the second day. Um, the room that we'd spent like a month like lovely, lovingly preparing and picking bed sheets and like picking the right color for the walls like got holes smashed in the plaster, the window got smashed um, and he would target us like he was kicking my, my wife. And he'd particularly go for me because he'd get a better rise out of me. Um, 
and he'd pursue me. He was kind of clearly wanting a reaction, so he'd like, he'd, he'd kind of kick me, and I would kind of like move away and seeking to keep my cool, and okay, I need to get, to get away from this kid, I'd lock myself in the bathroom, he's gonna knock the door down. And it got to the point where I reached a point where I had to lock myself outside of my house, lock him in uh, for his safety and mine, uh, and put myself somewhere in the garden where he couldn't see, him out, see me out of a window, so he wasn't banging on the windows about to smash that. And I'm sat there out in the garden being like, why am I in the garden? <laughs> like, this is a house that I have worked hard for, I've maintained. Um, and this kid who's just gonna come into our family is like, doesn't care about us. Like, why am I the one in the garden? It's costly, it's really costly. So why would you ever do it? It's like, this, this is costly. It's, I think it's gotta be up there one of the most costly things you, could, you can do, I think. That's because I'm in it, <laughs> it feels like it. Right? So why would you do it? Well, let's get back to the story. It comes with a promise. Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. There's a promise to do with this kind of servant-hearted, sacrificial ministry. God promises to be in it. Like, I get your head around that theologically. God promises to be with us always. And I, I, I know that. I believe that. I believe he's ever present. He lives inside of me. And yet, in the two years I've been a foster carer, I've experienced something of this promise. Then welcoming vulnerable, traumatized kids into our, our lives, God has come in in a way that I've not experienced before. Um, and I feel that we're just beginning to unpack all the, ins of out, all the ins and outs of what that means to have God welcomed in. Um, some of it is revelation. Like the revelation that, that I've had of the Father heart of God has been incredible. Um, one kid in our care, in fact, the one I've just mentioned, like he's kicking off to such an extent, like just seemed to not want any relationship with us. It was, felt like he was destroying and hurting the things that I hold dear. That in my heart, I was like, I do not, if I'm being really honest, I was like, I do not like this kid, and I want him out of my house. And you've got a small whisper in your, you hear from God saying, I love him, and I want to adopt him. <laughs> the contrast, the otherness of God, faced with our destructive behavior, faced with, with us, he never reaches a point where he's like, I don't like you, and I want you out. He is always loving, and he always wants us in. It's like, wow. And just the revelation of the, the sacrifice of Jesus, like some of the conversations that, that God and I have had, like when it's been really difficult, and I'm coming to God, and I'm saying, God, this is really tough. And I just hear God saying, yeah. I feel like God's not understood the argument that I'm making. I'm trying to say, like... <laughs> Like, this is really tough. Can I get out of this? Like, but God, it's like, this is really difficult. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, this is costing us loads. This is, you know, I'm having to give way more than I'm getting from these kids. Yeah. And then you realize that you're one, the one that you're speaking to is a lamb upon the throne. And he's got nail marks in his hands. And you realize that no matter how much you can express the cost 
of this. It's, you, know, you never going to win. <laughs> You're chatting with someone who's given it all. And you realize that you can never use the cost of something as an excuse to get out when he's given everything. He's given it all. I have to say the, uh, so another bit of unpacking what it means to have God with us is the, what's the best way to put it, the, the refinement, the Christ-likeness that comes about through it. Right? I, in each of those placements we've had, I felt they've been hand-picked for me. Like, I thought in welcoming traumatized kids into our home, we'd be the ones that'd be kind of like, you know, blessing them. And then you realize having traumatized kids come into your home, they reveal that you're traumatized. It's like, they have pressed buttons I didn't even know I had. Like, I didn't think that I was an angry person until there was like provocative behavior. And I'm like, I'm, I'm reacting. I'm like, wow, what, is just, what has just gone on there? I never realized how much I used shame. Um, how much I responded to people shaming me and how actually in pressure situations I would start shaming others. Uh, I never realized how poor I was at listening. If folk didn't talk to me right, I didn't want to know. Whereas these kids, they don't talk to you right, but they've got something to say and they need to be heard. It's like, wow, I'm not really a great listener. In each of the placements we've had, I felt that God has handpicked them to mold me in some way into the likeness of Christ. As I say, I thought we were welcoming traumatized kids into our house for us to help them. It seems like God is bringing traumatized kids into our home to help us. It turns out that I'm traumatized too and in need of parenting. And boy, that interaction with the father as he, as he fosters me, as he adopts me. And there's some of the other, other bits of just God being there, great answers to prayer. And the joy too of seeing you walk through a difficult placement by the strength and grace of God and seeing the difference that it makes. Let me tell you about that one boy. Um, for six months he was with us and it, to be honest, it was, a, it, was like a, it was a nightmare. It was so, so tough. The times me and my wife were hanging on by our fingernails. We were so close to phoning up the social worker and being like, for his safety, for our sanity, like we cannot do this. And it was just by the grace of God, it was like, God, we need you just to give us perseverance to keep going with this placement. And but six months in, he started to see that we were in it for the long haul, started to build relationship with us. Now, uh, you know, well, that, that boy changed. He really changed. He started getting happy, started letting Jesus in, started dealing with the tricky emotions. It just, he just started flourishing. And chatting with his social worker, she was saying, she's like, we don't know what would have his path would have been if you hadn't held on. And you could see it. All that she could see, she said, for him was prison. That was some of his family background. And you could see that if we had given up on him, he would have gone into the next foster place. And that's where he would have gone. And he would have kicked off the same, but with a reputation this time because it would have been in the notes that he's violent or, or whatever. And who knows how long he would have lasted there before the next foster placement and then the next one. And then he's out of foster care and you could just see the chain of events, which was reputation for violence um, and prison. And just by God giving us his strength and grace to hang on, he started to change. He started to attach. He started to develop, deal with his emotions. And now you're thinking, hey, I think he's going to have a great, such a clever kid, have a great career. Prison's just like, you know, 
far from the story of this guy's life when actually it was kind of the expectation for a while there. And the joy of ministering with, uh, in the power of God um, in our weakness, God showing himself strong and bringing about massive differences for these kids, changed lives. He's not, he's, I can confidently say he is not going to be one of that, one, that third statistic in prison. He's not. Because of the grace of God and the strength that he gave us to hang on, humanly, we would have been on the phone. It was only, only by the grace of God that that happened. But he is in it. He is in it. He is sufficient. He does give the strength that we need. And he is is great at working through broken vessels to bring the kingdom. So what does this mean for us, each of us? I don't know. I don't know what it means for each of you guys. Um, I'm excited, though. I'm excited about what it means for each of us. Uh, I know someone in this church who's in the last year become a foster carer had the seed planted in their heart at the age of 13. She felt that God spoke to her and said, I want you to become a foster carer. That's when the seed was planted. And now in their 20s, she's doing it. She's welcoming kids into our care. She's caring for the vulnerable and least. Um, and in, hey, maybe there's some of you here who've had that seed planted a while ago, and you have that in your hearts that you've, in fact, you've often said, hey, at some point in my life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to foster. At some point in my life, I would love to foster or adopt. Um, and I just put it to you like, maybe this is it. You know, sure, there's, there's barriers in the way. You, you know, just like that family in the early church, uh, you're probably already busy with the family that you've got. Um, you've probably got business to attend to and you know, already try to squeeze some leisure into your, your busy lives. Yeah. Um, but some of those things, they're, they're more the cost of doing it rather than reasons not to do it. And I just put it to you, will there really be a better time than now? You know, if we're looking for this time in the future where suddenly, yo, I'm not busy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got all this spare time and I've got a spare room and you know what, now would be the ideal time to foster. That time isn't coming. There'll always be a cost to this. The cost is worth it. But I just put it to you, maybe now's the time. We've got an event this Wednesday um, for this 100 Homes campaign. Uh, it's at St. Anne's with Emmanuel Church, Wednesday night. Uh, it's in St. Anne's. And it's a fostering as a Christian Q&A. Why don't you come along, take a first step. Um, yeah, why, don't you, why don't you just push some doors? God's able to close them if the time isn't right. But why don't we have it that way around? You know, are you sure God's calling you not to foster? So often we think about, is God calling me to foster? But what if we looked at it the other way around? I'm thinking, is God really calling me not to foster? He's able to close the doors on it if it's not right. Why don't we take some steps? But it's, it's true that not everyone can foster. We've got this phrase, it's on the leaflets um, down there, that not everyone can foster. I think it is anyway, but everyone can do something. Not everyone can foster but everyone can do something. And it's true, not everyone can foster. But actually, more people can foster than you think. So I hear um, people say, well, maybe when I'm old, I'm too young to foster. If you're, uh, if you're under the age of 21, it's true. You're too young to foster. But 21 and up, you're all in. Age is not a barrier with the council. Um, you're able to do it. You can say, well, I don't have a partner. Uh, I can see that that would be an advantage. I'm so grateful for me doing 
my wife and I doing this together, but I know some amazing single foster carers. Being single isn't a barrier to fostering. Yeah. You could say, well, I don't, I've not had kids of my own. My wife and I, don't, we don't have kids of our own. We just foster. Yeah. It's not a barrier out there. It might be a barrier within you, but can you put it to one side? It might be part of the cost of fostering, but there are not reasons not to do it. Yeah. Um, so there might be some here who can foster, but you think um, you can't. Uh, but there are some who just, it won't, it won't be right. Um, there'll be some that God is calling not to foster. And there, but there's plenty more that we can do. Not everyone can foster, but we can all do something. Uh, folk heard of Safe Families for Children. Folk heard of that amazing charity working in um, Nottingham, where you can get alongside families on the edge of care, provide a bit of support, and can stop their downward spiral that could end up with their kids in care. Great organization. Details in that leaflet. Why not inquire about that? But as a church, like the wraparound care that we can all give to foster carers in our churches is massive. Oh, it's so good to have a supportive church to foster carers in your midst. Like, we've had placements start, and the kids have arrived dirty, only got the clothes on their back, and you're like, and they've got school tomorrow. And you're thinking, right, I'm going to have to be down at the 24-hour Tesco or some other reputable um, supermarket. Um, <laughs> and just like stacking up on stuff. But we just put a word out on a WhatsApp group saying, guys, we've got a placement, they're coming, they're this age, this age. Uh, and there's folk arriving at the door with bin bags full of clothes. And you're like, we are sorted. Meals, there you go. It's like, oh. There's already enough on trying to get stuff sorted with kids. Providing that kind of support is massive. Uh, to foster as a church is so much better than fostering as an individual. Um, big one, babysitting. Babysitting's a real tricky thing as a foster care. You have to have DBS people to babysit for you. So our like, pool of babysitters is this. We can't just say to someone random, be like, are you free tonight? Oh, great, we're off. Um, can I encourage you to get around the foster carers in this church and be like, can I, can I babysit for you? It's, it's even as simple as like maybe just getting them getting a coffee for a couple of hours. It doesn't have to be like an evening thing. Uh, and I know that for at least one couple in this church, they're not allowed to leave their kid in a kids group unless they've got a volunteer in that kids group who is also DBS'd. It's so good to be able to come to church and be spiritually refreshed and go to this with your kids for a couple of hours, hopefully, if they stay in kids group. Um, can I encourage you to get involved in the youth of this church and get DBS? You guys are at a great advantage. Uh, get my bearings right. Uh, there, Isabella Street, that building there, that is the council's children and youth team. That's where they do the DBSs. It's right there. Very easy to go in and get it sorted. So can I encourage you in that? But, but just encourage you as a church, like pray for these guys, get around them. Oh, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a church to foster and adopt. Um, Chris Kandaya, he spoke here last November. Uh, what a great champion of fostering in this country. He noted that if every church in the country fostered or adopted a child, not every individual, every church fostered or adopted, adopted a child, there would be no care crisis in the country. Gone. So why do we do that? Some of you can foster. I'd encourage you to step out. For those who can't, we can all do something. And I think it's a matter of us hearing uh, from the Lord 
as to what he would have each of us do. Um, Rick, we just come up as we move into time and response. I've got a really simple response for us. It's simple, um, but it could be one of the most dangerous prayers you could pray beyond, I give you my life, Jesus. Because <laughs> it's similar. I just want to encourage each of you to pray. Why don't we all stand, okay? Um, I'm going to ask Rick and the, the band just to start, uh, just start playing some music. And just at some point within your own hearts, I want you to pray out, either in your hearts or out loud, one simple prayer. And this is it. Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, what would you have me do?